Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 15. We'll read God's word together and then we will pray. Exodus chapter 15 will be in verses 22 through 27 this morning. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Heavenly Father, we approach your word today in faith and with eager expectation that you will teach us. You tell us that your word is a lamp for our feet, it is light for our path, it is life for us. In your word, Lord, we behold you. We see your glory. We come to know more about your marvelous character, your good purposes, and the ways in which you have worked throughout history. Lord, we pray that you would feed our souls today and strengthen our faith in you. Help us, Lord, by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 2020 is over, officially. Um, And I think I can summarize 2020 with a verse. It's a verse from Romans. Romans chapter 8, 28 says, All things work together for good. For those who are called according to God's purpose. That's the story of 2020. All things work together for good. So regardless of if 2020 was the worst year for you, Or even if 2020, you might say, that was one of the best years I've ever had. Or maybe if you would say, to be honest, 2020 was a little bit of both for me. This is what we know to be true, that God works all things together for good. And some of those good things that God is doing have already been seen. And we're sitting in a church building that at the beginning of 2020, we didn't hardly know existed. And now we're here, which is amazing. But there's many things in 2020 that were difficult, that were painful, that were grievous, that we don't really see yet how that's going to work out for good. But we know that it will. Romans 8.28 applies to 2020. And Romans 8.28 also applies to 2021. Because days, years come and go. People come and go. Things change. But God doesn't. God doesn't change, and that's why we can trust him. This is why we worship him. Who he was is who he is and who he will be. And the fact that God uses hard things, the fact that God sometimes ordains difficult things, that's apparent not just from our own experience. 2020 can testify to that. 
but it's apparent on nearly every page of Scripture as well. And what we learn as we study God's Word is that one of the good things that God does, one of the good things that God uses difficulty for is to teach us teaching us things that we desperately need to know about our own hearts, teaching us things that we desperately need to know, more importantly, about him and what it means to trust him and what it means to worship him. And that experience of testing, trial, and difficulty and learning about who God is, that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. To catch you up to speed on where we're at here in Exodus 15, Israel is now free from slavery. They are a redeemed people, and they've literally just put away the tambourines. They've celebrated the parting of the Red Sea and God's amazing victory over the army of Egypt. God had worked mightily on their behalf. Chapter 1431 says they saw, and they feared, and they believed. But now what? What happens next? Well, these are a people en route. They have an appointment to keep. You see, these people no longer serve Pharaoh. Now they're supposed to serve God, and they have an appointment. They're scheduled to meet him at Mount Sinai. But before they arrive, their new faith, this newly emerging faith, this newly formed faith, this faith in the God of their fathers, it's about to be tested. And in this testing, some important lessons will be taught. In the next three chapters, we're going to find that God wants to teach them and to teach us about what it means to trust him. What it means to look to him, not just as our redeemer, not just as our guide, but also as our provider. The setting for this story is in verse 22. They've been three days in the wilderness. Moses made them set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and here's a key detail. They found no water. It's kind of funny. It says that Moses made Israel set out. You kind of get the idea that maybe they wanted to just stay there at the Red Sea. Maybe they wanted to just preserve that moment a little bit longer. We've just seen God do this amazing thing, and and, and we're celebrating, and there's joy, and we're singing the song of Moses. But you can't live there on that mountaintop forever, can you? Life happens, and the next day comes, and they have places to be, things to do. And the next stage of the journey awaited them, so they have to set out and leave the shores of the Red Sea. And while Moses is the one, it says here, who makes them go, remember that really it's God who is leading them. The presence of God went before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. So as Moses makes them go, and they go three days' worth of journey into the wilderness, they're not wandering aimlessly. They're going where God is leading them. But where God takes them is a place that exposes a need. They need water. The people could carry some water in their bags of skin. They maybe had some large pots, you know, on a cart that they could fill up. But that will only last you so long. And this is a nation of people with families and livestock. And eventually, without water, their supplies would have run out. It's kind of funny. The problem at the Red Sea was too much water. They were pinned, you know, with, with the sea at their backs and the army of Pharaoh before them. But now the problem is not enough water. But God is not surprised by this. God is not concerned by this. In fact, the reason why they're experiencing this crisis is because God has something to teach them. The seashore and the wilderness will both be prime opportunities for God to display for these people his faithfulness and his power. God wants to teach them he's not just their redeemer. 
He's not just their guide and protector. He would also be their provider. He would meet their needs. This lesson would be essential for their journey through the wilderness. It would be essential as they entered the promised land. They needed to come to know God as their provider and to trust him. They needed to learn to look to his hand for all that they needed. We saw at the end of chapter 14 that the people believed. They believe in God, but their faith is small. It was weak. It was lacking. Just like our faith, theirs needed some development. Not because there's something uniquely wrong with them. It's just because they're human. And none of us starts out fully mature in our faith. None of us can take any shortcuts to spiritual maturity. We all start at stage one and need to grow. And for Israel, the wilderness was going to be their classroom. And God was going to be their teacher. So the days are going by. Day one, no water. Day two, still no water. Day three, there's no water. You can almost feel the tension and the fear starting to grow. But then comes the real punch to the gut in verse 23 and 24. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? You can almost imagine, you can picture it in your minds. The dusty and tired people finally getting to this destination. They, they see trees and, and they see some signs of green plant life and they are anticipating being able to drink and to water their flocks. But word quickly spreads through the caravan that the first ones to the water made a horrible discovery. It was undrinkable. It was salty. It was brackish. It was bitter. And this is more than just an annoyance. You have to understand here that the reality of death is present in their minds. And we've seen what fear of death can do to a people. This past year in 2020, a virus kind of spread around the world. And regardless of how dangerous it actually was, we saw the impact that fear can have. They knew that first their livestock would fall. No more goat milk, no more sheep, no more cows to milk. Then the weakest among them would faint. The children, the elderly, and eventually they knew the wilderness would claim them all in a massive sandy grave. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Well, their hopes here have been shattered. Shattered at Mara. The bitterness of the water then leads to bitterness of heart. The people respond by grumbling. They grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And this sort of kicks off a new theme here in this portion, in this season in the life of Israel. There's going to be other times where they grumble as well. It won't be the last time. Despite God's promises to them, that he would bless them and bring them into the land of Canaan, make them a great nation. Despite God's proven track record, as he delivered them out of Egypt and he had rescued them by bringing them through the Red Sea. Despite all of this, they grumble against Moses. Sure, God had done so much for them at the Red Sea, but that was like three whole days ago. What's he done for us lately, Moses? You know, how quickly they forget. How brittle was their gratitude and their faith. And notice what they say to Moses. They say, what shall we drink? Verse 24. And that's really a sensible question. That's not a bad thing to ask. This, this is a legitimate need. These aren't irrational fears. This isn't a 10-year-old whining because he didn't get the latest PlayStation. Like, this is a matter of life and death. 
So there's no real issue with the words spoken here. The problem was with their attitude. The problem was with the spirit and the heart that was behind their words. Maybe you can relate it to experiences that perhaps some of you have had. Hopefully not too much. But maybe you can imagine, you know, a group of kids coming in and sitting down at the dinner table. And they say, Mom, what are we having for dinner? That's a sensible question. Nothing wrong with asking that. But there's two ways you can ask that question. You can say, Mom, what are we having for dinner? And perhaps those children have a certain spirit behind the question, one of a normal expectation that surely our wonderful mother has something good in store for us. She always does. And maybe she needs some help getting things dished up and would be happy to do so. Mom, what are we having for dinner? That's an attitude of thankfulness because they know that mom always has something good planned. Such words can be spoken in love, with trust, and with even a sort of thankful expectation. Mom, what are we having for dinner tonight? Or you can imagine the other way to ask that question. Grumpy kid slams himself down into his chair at the table. Mom, what are we having for dinner? That's a totally different attitude, isn't it? You better not say that, okay? (laughs) That's an attitude that shows this kid is annoyed that dinner isn't already on the table. These words are biting. They deliver accusation. They assume the worst. Such a child is entitled and selfish and seems to have conveniently forgotten that he has never once gone hungry before. Mom always puts dinner on the table. You see, attitude makes a huge difference. There's not a problem with their question. The problem is with the spirit of grumbling. This attitude that Israel manifested was sinful. It was sin. Although they're grumbling against Moses, really their issue is with God. It's with the God that Moses represents. They were doubting God's plans. Did God lead them out here to die? What are we going to drink? They were doubting God's goodness. Does he really care about us? Doesn't he know that we're thirsty and our flocks haven't drank anything in a couple days? They were doubting his power. Was God really able to do anything about this need? They're grumbling and complaining showed unbelief, a lack of faith. Well, how does God respond to them? Really in a pretty amazing way. Verse 25, we see Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Why were they in the wilderness in the first place? Remember, God had led them there. Why were they without water? Because God had something that he wanted to teach them. And he teaches them, first of all, by giving this divine provision. God shows Moses a log or a tree. Some translations have it. And this word shows here is interesting. It's a teaching word. God shows Moses something that he wants him to see. Because there's something that he wants him to do. God is setting up an object lesson for his people. Just like at the Red Sea where Moses had said, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. God, once again, wants his people to see something. So God tells Moses, hey, throw that log in the water. And Moses obeys. He throws it in, and the quality of the water is changed. It's no longer bitter. It's no longer loaded with mineral deposits and harsh chemicals. It's fresh. It is sweet. It is drinkable. It's life-giving to a thirsty and desperate people. I want you to consider here the grace that we see in this text. Maybe go back to the earlier illustration when your kid sits himself down and says, mom, what's for dinner? At least if you say that in my house, there's going to be severe consequences. But God shows incredible grace to these people. 
He offers no rebuke to them. He provides for the whiners. He meets the need of the grumblers, those who are doubting his goodness and accusing his wisdom and forgetting his faithfulness. These people are young in their faith, and God is willing and patient to work with them. And he answers their question, what are we going to drink? By demonstrating his power in their sight, he changes the water. He shows them, I am your provider. God had already shown his power over the creation, even his power with water. I mean, remember the plagues in Egypt? He changed the Nile to blood. So God rules over the waters. He parted the Red Sea and let them walk through on dry ground and and then collapsed it back on top of the army of Egypt. So God can handle issues with water. And his rule over creation wasn't limited to those locations. God says, listen, I'm still with you, and I'm still God, and I'm still sovereign over things like water. God has the power to meet their need, and he has the willingness to do so. So you might ask the question, so why the whole log tree thing? Well, there's really nothing special about the tree. It's not like the tree produces some chemical reaction or you know, somehow filters the water or something. No, this is just a miracle. God makes the water fresh. And God didn't need the log. There's really an unlimited number of ways in which God could have made this happen. He could have just spoken the word. He could have just thought the thought. He could have created new water like he would, he'll do later, we'll see in a couple weeks, with water coming out of a rock. But he, being a good teacher, decides here to use a visual aid. He wants them to see action. And when we see God in action, when we behold his works, it builds our faith. The people saw this example in Moses. They saw Moses cry out to God with a need. They saw God give instruction to Moses. They saw Moses obey God, and they saw God work. It's an instructive example that Moses listened, he obeyed, and God blessed. You see, God wanted to teach them something about what it looks like to trust him and follow him. And he does this with this divine uh, provision of changing the water. But he follows this up with a divine proclamation. A divine proclamation in verse 25. After the water becomes sweet, says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, And do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. If you look in verse 26, there's a repetition of a pattern. He says, listen and do. And then he repeats it. Give ear and keep. It's really a repetition of the same pattern. Listen to what I'm saying, and do it. Give ear to what I'm telling you, and keep all my commandments. Listen, receive my word, and obey. It's a two-step pattern. And friends, this is the pattern of faith. God's people are to receive his word, and to respond in faith and obedience. And they needed to learn what that looked like. They needed to see it in action. They needed to have it shown to them so that they could imitate that. And Moses here is an example. They faced a great need, so God gives instruction. He says, look at this log, throw it in the water. Moses listens to God's word. He does what God said, and God provides for their need. And this pattern really appears over and over again in the scriptures. 
And there's too many to count, but I'll just share with you a few. Whenever God's people are in need or face a crisis or there's some obstacle, often God gives instruction. The people listen, trust, obey, and then God acts. We see this in the book of Joshua. Jericho has big walls. What does God say? March around the walls. Once a day for seven days, but on the seventh day, do it seven times. That sounds about as logical as throw this log in the water, right? Did God need the people to march around the walls? No. He's showing them, trust me, do what I say, and watch me work. God flattened the walls. Even before that, we see it in Numbers 21. The people are getting bitten by snakes as a consequence for their sin. They need the healing that God is talking about here in Exodus 15. God gives instruction to Moses, make a serpent out of bronze, lift it up in the middle of the camp, and whoever looks will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. We see it in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 5, Peter's been fishing all night, and he's caught nothing. And Jesus tells him to do something illogical. I know it's daytime, and I know your nets are highly visible to fish in the daytime. I know you've already fished this area for hours and hours, but I want you to put out a little ways and throw your net in the water. Listen to my instructions, trust me, and obey. And what happens? Peter obeys, and the nets in the boat can hardly hold the fish. I mean, this is a paradigm we see all throughout the scriptures, and we find it in the gospel as well, don't we? We have a great danger. We're in great need. We need redemption. We need forgiveness. We need to be delivered from judgment. We need to be reconciled to God. God says, listen to my instruction. I have provided salvation to my son. You are to repent and believe. And we respond by trusting in what God says, believing in his son. And we enter into a life of submission and obedience to our Lord and master, Jesus Christ. I mean, we see this pattern over and over and over again. This is what faith looks like, to receive God's word and to do it in faith. God says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. We see this pattern of listen, trust, obey. Listen, trust, obey. Listen, trust, obey. But then God says this statement about diseases and Egyptians and being a healer. And that might kind of take you by surprise. You say, wait a second, what does this have to do with healing and what does this have to do with Egypt? Well, this conditional statement of if you do this, then you will experience this. This conditional statement shows us there's actually a greater danger to these people than thirst. There's actually a bigger problem they have than maybe not having enough water for their families and their livestock. You know, their greatest problem was actually the holiness of God. And the fact that their sinful unbelief would only only lead to painful consequences. You know, we're often preoccupied with immediate needs, aren't we? What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat and drink? Where shall we live? Those kinds of concerns. Immediate needs, circumstances and difficulties that are right here in our face. But this story reminds us there's actually a greater need and a greater danger than some of the circumstances we may face this week. And it's the consequences of our sin. That's a greater danger. And this almost seems off topic for us to talk about diseases in Egypt Because that's not what was concerning the Israelites in this moment. But the point is, is that God is saying, listen, this is what you should be concerned about. You should be concerned about about how this God who judged Egypt, how we can coexist with him, how he can dwell in our midst, and we not suffer the consequences of our sin. 
You see, the real crisis wasn't bitter water. It was bitter hearts. It was the grumbling and the unbelief in their spirit. Hearts that were slow to believe in God, slow to trust in his goodness. Hearts that were demanding and skeptical instead of being humble and trusting God. And as much as there's a great miracle of provision here and a promise of future blessing for them, there's also a warning. The implication of this statement is that if you don't listen, if you don't receive what I'm saying to you, my commandments, if you don't obey me, then you will experience the consequences of your rebellion, just like the Egyptians did. Their unbelief was a far greater threat to their survival than a lack of water. And this is why the whole situation is referred to as a test. In verse 25, he says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. He tested them. You see, this whole ordeal was meant to expose where they were at. Maybe in 2020, we've learned a little bit about ourselves. The temperature got turned up just a little bit, and it showed us how mature we really were in our faith. Right? These tests are valuable because they show us our need to grow. God creates this crisis for them. He brings them into the wilderness, away from water, and then he leads them right to Marah, where he knew the water would be bitter. And he didn't do this out of spite. He does this to teach them, to show himself to them, and to to meet their needs and prepare them for Sinai. They're on their way to the mountain to receive God's law. And already God is preparing them, saying, listen, it is of utmost importance that you listen to what I say, that you obey what I command. He's preparing them, teaching them about the importance of responding to God in faith and obedience. But they don't stay at Marah. Verse 27 tells us, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. We know that God often leads us into trials. He puts us into situations that test our faith. But aren't you thankful that we don't live there all the time? (laughs) Um, God, in his mercy and kindness, there's times where he leads us into seasons of refreshment, seasons where there's abundant provision. We see here that Elam has 12 springs. Why does it matter that there's 12 and not a different number? Why does the author Moses here point that out? 12 here is symbolic of God's complete provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. Everything they need, enough for all of them. There's 70 palm trees. Seven is the number of perfection and wholeness, showing that God has perfectly and abundantly provided for their need. They have rest. They have relief. They have refreshment. So yes, God leads them into times of crisis to teach them, but he also leads them into times of rest and blessing. And this is God's grace. Grace to a people with weak faith. Grace to a people who tend to grumble when things get difficult. A people who had heart issues just like us. But God had chosen them. He knew what they were like. He knew what their struggles would be, but he chose them. He loves them. He has rescued them from Egypt, not because of their worthiness, but because of his mercy and grace. And here we see that they continue to experience grace upon grace, the grace of teaching and also the grace of rest and provision and blessing even though they've been less than perfect in their responses to God's trials and blessings that he's brought upon them. Elam is a reprieve, but it's only a temporary pit stop. You see, they're soon going to face round two of this same test, and they'll have more opportunities to trust God and see him miraculously provide for their needs. And we'll get to that in the coming weeks 
as we see the, the manna God provides from heaven and the water he provides from the rock. It, sometimes it takes repetition for us to really learn, and it will for them as well. But really, the story of Israel mirrors our own experience in so many ways. We too, like the Israelites, are a people who've been rescued from slavery. People who've been chosen by God. People who have received his love and been redeemed. By his mighty acts of grace and judgment, God has brought us out. And we are on our way to the promised land. But just like Israel, we aren't there yet. And just like Israel, we are in the process of learning more about this God who has saved us. We're in the process of growing in our faith. And in the wilderness, as we journey, we will be tested. And these tests are opportunities to grow. And it's important that we respond to them rightly. 1 Corinthians 10.9 says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So what do we learn from this story? How does this story instruct us? I sort of backloaded the outline to the end of the message here. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you two points this morning. And the first is this. Number one, God desires faith and obedience from his people. That's what he wants. God desires faith in obedience from us, his people. Faith is believing God. It's taking him at his word. It's trusting him. Obedience is then the expression of this faith. You can say that you believe God or you believe in God, but that belief needs to be strong enough. We believe him enough to do what he commands. We do what he commands because we trust that his word is true. We do what God commands, we obey, because we trust that his will is right, that he knows best, and that obedience is the path to enjoying the fullness of his blessings. So the people of Israel here in Exodus 15 are a negative example. They grumble. They don't trust God. Moses, as we pointed out, is the positive example. He trusts, he obeys, and then they experience God's blessing on the backside of that. And I don't think that this concept is limited to the Old Testament. Some of you might be a little hesitant and say, now, wait a second, it sounds like you're saying if you obey God, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll face the consequences. That doesn't sound like grace. Well, there is a truth, a baseline truth, that we reap what we sow. And it does not invalidate the gospel of grace to say that responding to God in faith and obedience is the path to blessing. Now, it may not be the blessing of being rich or being healthy or living a long life. It may not be the blessings of having everybody like you, but it's the blessings that matter. And this does not invalidate the gospel. In fact, Jesus, when he speaks to his disciples, he says, by this um, will I know that you love me. He says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. Basic obedience to the lordship of Christ, that's like Christianity 101. So if we celebrate grace, that God works in us and does things for us totally apart from our merit, that is good and right. Yes, that is true. But that doesn't mean that there's not real-life consequences for doubting God or trusting him. Real-life consequences for obeying his word or deciding that we know better. And I think it's clear, even in this text, that God's not talking here about salvation, saying, if you obey me, if you, if you listen to my voice, then I'll save you. No, remember, he's already saved them. This isn't a prerequisite for them to be delivered out of Egypt. 
These aren't hoops they had to jump through before God would would rescue them from slavery. He's already shown them grace. He's already redeemed them, not because of anything in them, but because of his goodness and his sovereign plan. He's already done for them far more than they deserve, more than they could have ever earned. And now as a people who have already received his grace, he's saying, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to worship me. Here's how I want you to respond. When life gets hard, when there's trials and crisis, I want you to listen. I want you to trust me, and I want you to obey. This is what it looks like to follow God, to worship him and trust him. We listen, we trust, and we obey. This isn't about earning God's favor. This isn't about meriting salvation. No, salvation is all of grace from start to finish. But this is how God desires that we respond to him. God desires faith and obedience from his people. Secondly, God uses dire circumstances to test and teach us. So he wants faith and obedience from us, and then he uses dire circumstances, difficult situations, to test us and to teach us. So when things get hard, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Really, 2020 was a test for us. For some of us, 2020 exposed weak faith. And perhaps for some of you, the hope has been, well, once we get to 2021, maybe then things will be better. But what if 2021 holds bitter water? What if 2021 is going to be more like Mara than Elam? What if it fails to bring the relief and refreshment that you wanted? Are you going to grumble? Are you going to have a bad attitude? Are you going to doubt the goodness of God and question him? Are you going to grumble? I think too often we see crisis, we see adversity as somehow being a test for God. Okay, God, are you going to do what you said you would do? Are you going to prove yourself again? But this is the wrong way to look at it. We ought to rather see crisis as a test for us, not a test for God. It's something that God has designed to reveal the genuineness of our faith, to expose the areas that are weak so that we can grow, so that we can be strengthened. And this, my friends, is something that we need to embrace, not resent. Don't resent the trials. Don't resent the tests. Don't resent the crisis. We embrace it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter these various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness and endurance and hope. We know the verses. Embrace it. What does it look like to embrace the trials and the crisis? Does this mean that we have to just pretend like everything's okay all the time? hey, we're thirsting to death, but I don't care. No, no. There's actually an appropriate place for lament. Read Jeremiah. Read Lamentations. There's a proper way to express our griefs to God. There's a proper place for petition, for saying, God, here is our needs. Please do something. I love the prayer of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, 12. This army is marching toward them, and he prays, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Yes, pray that way. Petition God. Ask him to work. Lament is appropriate. Petition is appropriate. But grumbling is never appropriate. It is always sin. Grumbling is sin because it accuses God. Grumbling accuses God's wisdom. It says, I don't think God really knows what's best. I don't think he has the best plan for our nation or for my family or for me. 
Grumbling accuses God's goodness. It accuses him that he's not being faithful and loving and kind. Grumbling accuses God. Grumbling is rebellious because it resists his purposes. It resists the the, the process of testing and teaching that God brings us through. God, I don't want to be tested, and I don't want to learn whatever it is that you're trying to teach me right now. No. That's what grumbling says. It's rebellious. Grumbling is arrogant because it withholds faith and trust. It says, God, you have to prove yourself to me once again in this situation, in the ways I want you to prove yourself before I'm going to trust you and have peace. That's arrogant. Perhaps some of you are guilty of grumbling about things that are going on in our world right now. Maybe at the national global event, grumbling about COVID, grumbling about politics, grumbling about whatever. There's a host of other issues. Perhaps your grumbling is deeply personal. Perhaps it's a matter of physical suffering, illness, financial pressure, maybe even personal loss. I do not mean to minimize any of those things because it's real and it's painful. It's difficult. Those are serious challenges and real needs, and they have a great impact upon our lives. But listen, who has led us here? It's God. Who is still sovereign over creation, over the nations, and over the cells in your body? It's God. Who put that person in your life, in your family? Maybe who put that person in your church? God did. So to grumble is to sin against God. Rather than asking, God, what are you doing? We need to remember that it is we who are being tested And we need to turn that question around. When things get hard, what are we doing? Are we listening to God's word? Are we trusting him? Are we obeying all that he has commanded us to do? Because this is the way of faith. This is how God desires for us to respond. And when things get hard, when things get difficult, even when things are painful, this is what God is trying to teach us. To trust him and to look to his hand for provision and for rest and for relief. God desires faith and obedience from his people. He uses difficult circumstances to test us and to teach us. So friends, I don't know what 2021 holds, but let's seek to embrace all that God leads us into as individuals, as families, and as a church. And let's learn to look to him as our great savior who not only keeps us and protects us, but also the one who provides everything that we need. He's with us, and he's good. Let's trust him. Heavenly Father, as we um, consider our own sinful tendency to grumble and complain and to doubt you, Lord, it's convicting. It's convicting that we often resent the fact that we go through painful, difficult times. Lord, we thank you that just like you were gracious with those people, you're so gracious and patient with us. Though we're often whiners who complain and grumble and have weak faith, you are so kind to provide for us anyway, to meet our needs, but even more importantly, to teach us things that we desperately need to learn. We need to learn that you are good. We need to learn that you're a faithful provider, and you know that the only way we'll really get it is if we go through the school of hard knocks and we firsthand experience what it feels like to be three days journey into the wilderness with no water. 
Lord, many in this room have been on those journeys and they've seen you provide. I praise you for that. I praise you for the strong faith that it's in this room. It's faith that you have built. And Lord, for those in this room who maybe haven't gone through those tests yet, or for those who have but have not yet grasped the lesson that you're trying to teach them, I pray that today they would learn to look to you in faith, to listen to your word, to obey what you command, and to trust that you will take care of us. Lord, create this faith in us where it's, where it's missing. Strengthen it where it is small. Sustain it where it exists. Lord, we give you all the glory. By your grace, you've saved us and made us your own. Help us now to live in a manner that is worthy of your calling. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.